In Seattle this morning, police are hunting a mass murderer believed to have killed as many as 21 prostitutes in the last 22 months. Been called the Green River Killer ever since the first bodies, five of them, were pulled from this river. Since then, seven more bodies have been discovered nearby, all those of young prostitutes, according to police. And the number of missing increases steadily. Two were added to the list this week. All the victims worked this strip near the Seattle airport, crammed with hotels, motels, and strip joints. They call it the work of the Green River Killer, probably one man who has murdered 13 young women near Seattle. Case unsolved. All deeply troubled sexually. Since 1978, 17 men have been convicted of killing 10 or more people. Historically, uh, they kill certain types of victims, women, homosexuals, and children. In Seattle, another grim discovery today. Explorer scouts have found the remains of another human body buried on a wooded hillside near Seattle. Police in Washington State believe they found the remains of another victim of the so-called Green River Killer. Another victim has been identified in the nation's longest list of unsolved murders, the Green River Killings. 37 women have died, nine missing, all thought to be victims of the same killer. One lucky break. One individual out there that knows in their heart who's done this and has been reluctant to come forward. This suspect, this individual, has had a remarkable string of luck. In the early 80s, police in Washington State tied the deaths of 49 young women to the so-called Green River Killer. The killer apparently left the region in 1984, but the number of murders is on the rise again, and police fear the killer may be back. Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you as we prepare to take our fifth and final look at the Green River killings that took place in Seattle, Washington from the early 80s until the early 2000s. Before we get into all of that, however, I have a couple of show notes as well as a few plugs. I have a few interviews lined up for the show, uh, one of which I mentioned a few weeks back, which had to be pushed back for unforeseen circumstances, and I am hoping to get those recorded here in the next week or so. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy them. They're all true crime-centric. Next, I know a few people have been waiting for the audible version of my novel, The Throwaway Girls of Olympia. I just received the unmastered audio for that this week. So hopefully within the next month or two, We will be moving into the final stages of that, and you'll be able to purchase it on Audible. If you're interested, and in the meantime, my previous novel, The House of Silver Doors, is available on Audible. And that one is a bestseller on Audible. 
So if you're looking for something a little different, a little spooky, it's the House of Silver Doors available on Audible. If you would like to help support the show, a couple ways you can do that. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict. They really do help as the more reviews that a show has, particularly five-star reviews, the higher up it shows in the app's suggested list. You can also like and share on social media as well as follow the show wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also donate to the show by going to CorpseCreekPress.com. That's my official website and clicking on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee, a pack of smokes, whatever your heart desires and Every amount is appreciated, and no amount is too small. If you would like to advertise on the DeathCast, you can email me at ian at corpsecreekpress.com. Very reasonable rate, so if you're a small business or even a larger business, just email me at ian at corpsecreek.com. If you would like to follow me on social media, that would be... Instagram, Facebook, MeWe, and YouTube. Just search for Ian Totten, author. Now on the Facebook page, there is a DeathCast group associated with the page. You just click join group. I will see it. I will approve it. And you can come. We have a lot of fun in there. I post the shows in there as well as a lot of dark memes. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Corpse Creek. If you're interested in finding any of my books, you can just search for Ian Totten on Amazon or just Google Ian Totten and they should all come up. Alright, now that the business is out of the way... Get yourself something to drink, find a chair, sit back and relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the Green River. We left off last week with talking about the perpetrator of the murders, one Gary Leon Ridgway, and how the task force had looked at him a number of times over the ensuing years, first starting in around 1983 when he was picked up for soliciting a prostitute. And again, a few years later when he was brought in for questioning. And eventually, I think it was around 1988 when they looked at him and took a DNA swab from the inside of his mouth. While there was at least one detective on the task force who thought that Ridgway was probably their best suspect, not everybody involved in searching for the killer felt this way. In fact, a good number of them dismissed Ridgway as the killer because he had steady employment, owned his own house, and was married or in a steady relationship at the times that he was looked at. There were other factors that led them to dismiss Ridgway as well. 
one of which being that the murders seemed to have petered out by the end of 1984, which led a lot of those who were searching for the killer to speculate that the perpetrator had either been in prison, died, or moved from the area. And I think it's telling the difference between now versus then, where back then, law enforcement did not talk with their counterparts in other states for the most part, whereas today, if there were a series of killings like this, they would more likely than not reach out through the various networks that they had to see if anybody else had similar killings occurring in their area. As for the task force itself, in 1986 they went on to state that they believed the killer would be caught by the end of the year. And they continued to look at other suspects, one of which was a man who was known to have a barn filled with photographs of women, mostly prostitutes. And they also consulted with the Washington State Fish and Wildlife Rangers under the belief that the killer might in fact be a fur trapper since they knew that trappers oftentimes would put a body inside the water and lay it, weigh it down with rocks and other heavy items in an effort to preserve the meat. And I can see why they did this given that the first five victims were found in the water with two of the last being found submerged by rocks. However, this line of inquiry did not pan out. Towards the end of 1986, the task force was given a new commander in the form of Captain Jim Pompey, who was a seasoned officer who, among other things, had headed the county's SWAT team. There were other changes taking place in the task force at this time as well. It was cut down considerably in terms of manpower and resources being allotted to it. This was partially done because there had been no new known murders since the end of 1984 but also because the state and county had really grown weary with the task force's inability to catch this killer. That's one of those things that makes you wonder if they had not cut down on the task force's budget, would they possibly have caught Gary Ridgway sooner rather than later? In October of 1986, 19-year-old Patricia Michelle Barzak went missing. At the time, she was not attributed to the Green River Killer. The following year, February 7, 1987, 21-year-old Roberta Joseph Hayes went missing. As with all of the other victims, these two young women had very similar pasts involving difficult childhoods, drug use, 
and a fierce independent streak about them, and sadly they fell in with the wrong crowd and ended up working the streets. I think it's important here to just mention that prior to Ridgeway's arrest and his subsequent confessions, there were a number of other girls who were thought to be victims of his that Ridgeway in turn disavowed having killed them. One of these young women was murdered before Ridgeway's first known victim. And when questioned about it, he basically said that he had had nothing to do with that victim. In a similar vein, there was great gaps as the 80s wore on into the 90s where no known victims are known to have been taken. This despite the fact that Ridgeway's third wife stated that he often worked late or left early in the morning claiming to be doing overtime. That really makes me believe that there are many, many other victims out there who were either never reported, were found but not attributed to him, or were never reported and never found. Which is very possible, especially given the transient lifestyle of women working as prostitutes. You take that and couple it with the background of so many of these young women where they have a falling out with their family and the family stops hearing from them, it's very easy for a family to assume that their daughter decided she wanted nothing to do with them ever again and moved out of the area to start a new life somewhere. So I would really love to know if, you know, the FBI has looked into possible further victims or the Kings County Sheriff's Office has, but I suspect they probably haven't just because Ridgeway's in prison and has no chance of ever getting out again. The Green River case was a first in many aspects. The number of victims who were taken the amount of money spent on the task force over the years. I've read a couple of different reports that put the amount spent on this task force in the hundreds of millions of dollars, which far exceeds that of the Atlanta child murders. It also received nationwide media coverage and was one of, if not the first, serial murders to have a television special dedicated to it in the hopes that the show would draw in tips that would lead investigators to arrest. On December 7th, 1988, an America's Most Wanted-style program called Manhunt a Chance to End the Nightmare was broadcast, hosted by Patrick Duffy, whose sister was a Seattle police officer and whose parents had both been murdered 
when two teenagers robbed their bar. A number of tips came in from this television show. Unfortunately, however, the detectives were no closer to finding the man responsible. Of the few who believe that Gary Ridgway was probably the best suspect, though, they kept checking in on him periodically throughout the ensuing years to see what he was doing. And it seemed that Ridgway had a fairly stable life, especially once he got married to Judith, and they began to build a life together. There's a lot of photographs out there of Ridgway's home. He moved from the homes that he had lived in near Seattle Strip, and the couple bought successively larger houses, as well as uh, RVs. They started off with the pickup truck with the camper shell on the back and moved their way steadily up to larger SUVs because the two of them liked spending time outdoors as well as in their church. Ridgeway was very involved in his church community during this time. As the 90s progressed, the task force started finding more evidence on the older bodies, particularly small glass beads which were later found to have come from the little rectangular reflectors that are embedded inside of robes. Unfortunately, this bit of information would not help the investigation any, as the FBI informed the task force at that time that they were fairly common. Something else that had been found, which was not released to the public at the time, was one of those bits of what the law enforcement refers to as holdback evidence. That's evidence that they don't release to the public or to the press, but they hold back in the hopes that at some point they can either use it if it's DNA evidence to link a suspect to the crimes or information that only the killer would know. That would include the stones that were placed inside the vaginas of a few of the victims. The major piece of holdback evidence, however, concerned uh, DNA. Opal Mills was the only known victim who had uh, someone else's blood inside of her body in the form of semen. None of the other victims were found to have any sort of bodily fluids inside of their bodies that didn't belong to them. Opal, however, who was a type A blood, was found to have type O blood in her system. They also found various fibers on a number of the victims. Things like carpet fibers, fibers from furniture, blankets, as well as dog hairs. And it was in this fashion that they were least able to link the victims together as having met the same perpetrator. 
Another bit of holdback evidence which was not released by the police was the fact that small, minuscule paint fibers were found on their bodies. Unfortunately, police at the time were unable to link them to any known automobile manufacturer, which leads me to suspect that they were probably imagining that the person they were looking for worked in an auto body shop of some type. If they had had the foresight to look outside of pedestrian-produced vehicles, then they may have come across the fact that these particles were used in the painting of big rigs. And you really can't blame the task force for missing this piece of information, especially when you look at how much information they were getting on a monthly basis, the amount of political pressure being put on them from the higher-ups to solve this spate of killings, and how drastically the task force's resources had been depleted by the early to mid-1990s. 82, 83, 84, they had a fairly large budget with numerous resources being allotted for their use, but as time went on and nothing was produced, the state just turned around and said, okay, take a little more for them, take a little more from them. And I understand that from the aspect of If you're pouring all your money into this thing and it's not producing any results, eventually you have to stop pouring money into it before the constituents start looking at you and asking why, where's all this money going? And while the FBI was helping out in regard to some aspects of the case, they were not officially running this case. Nor were they going to do all of the work that was being asked of them for free. So the people running the task force really had to pick and choose where they asked for assistance. Because you're going to get a bill for whatever it is you're asking for. And the money that you're spending on that might be needed further down the line. And there's no guarantee that you're going to get that money. One bit of information that was put out to the public, although it doesn't seem to have taken many rounds, was the description of the suspect that they were looking for. And again, this might have been because the task force was so deluged with information that it simply got by them, or... It might have been that not everybody took these witness statements as credible, but the individual they were looking for was described as being slight of build between 5 foot 8 and 5 foot 11, white male in his mid 30s, usually wearing a flannel shirt with light brown or blonde hair, oftentimes wearing a baseball cap. A few witnesses described this individual as having a mustache, although not all stated that he had this. Police had this information they disseminated at times, however, 
they also understood that witness statements are notoriously unreliable. A lot of people wonder, you know, why that is. Well, you're less apt to pick up on things if you are nervous or frightened. But if it's a regular occurrence to see somebody leaving with an individual that you've never seen before, it's very easy to dismiss that person's appearance as being unimportant, which is why so often you see witnesses describing an individual after the fact of a crime having taken place, and while they may get a few details somewhat correct, more often than not, the perpetrator that they are looking for doesn't really match up to who actually committed it. And that's not unusual in any way, shape, or form, simply because most people do not have a photographic memory, and when an individual is trying to recall somebody they saw, particularly after a crime has been committed, there's a lot of other faces that are popping into their head as they're talking to the police. So they might jumble up the individual they saw and give out characteristics of somebody else coupled with the characteristics of the individual the police are actually looking for. I saw on a true crime thread at one point where somebody had stated that they don't understand why people don't just look at somebody when they're leaving and hold that information into their brains so that they can regurgitate it almost at will. And to me, that's just an asinine statement given by somebody who has watched way too much CSI or ID channel and thinks that in having this total recall of an individual when you weren't expecting something to happen is common when it is not. And if you think it's easy to recall somebody who you've never seen before, I challenge anyone to go out and take a drive down the street or just when you're on your way to work and try and recall in vivid perfect detail somebody else that you saw either walking on the street or driving a car. It's not that easy, particularly if the individual they're trying to recall is as nondescript as Gary Ridgway. Ridgway thought that he had got really gotten away with his crimes, especially once, you know, his last known murder had taken place and a decade had passed but he also began to grow comfortable in his life with Judith as I stated a little while ago they had progressively bought up in terms of houses and beyond the police coming and visiting him at work and looking into his locker for evidence there really was no contact between he and the task force from that point on. 
in his mind, he had not left any physical evidence that could be tied back to him. And while I have stated numerous times throughout this show that I don't believe he ever stopped killing, that isn't to say that he didn't slow down. In fact, we know he did because with his wife, he also had his son as well as his wife's two daughters. Once the three of them were out of the house, however, Ridgeway had a lot more time on his hands to give to other pursuits. His last confirmed victim was taken in 1998. That was 38-year-old Patricia Yellowrobe. She is the oldest of Ridgeway's known victims. And she was also found fairly quickly. She vanished at some point in January, and her body was found August 6th of 1998. On the task force front, although it was fairly inactive at this point, some would even say it was mostly abandoned, it still did exist and the task force was given a jolt of new blood when former detective Dave Reichert, who had worked both the Ted Bundy murders and on the Green River Task Force, was elected as the new sheriff of Kings County. And with Reichert coming on board, new life was flushed into the task force and they again began really looking at their suspects. And they started to zero in on Gary Leon Ridgway. He was one name among a number of others that kept coming up time and again, both in the initial investigations and throughout the ensuing years. At some point in the late 90s or early 2000s, the police took the sample of semen that they had taken from Opal Mills, as well as the swab from the inside of Gary Ridgway's mouth, and sent them off for comparison. Around this time, November 16th, 2001 to be specific, Ridgeway had gotten some money from his wife, who was the keeper of their finances, to go get gas for their truck. And along the way, he spotted a young woman standing on the side of the road. And as is often the case with Ridgeway, he felt a stirring and decided to pull over and talk to this woman to see what she was charging. Ridgeway ended up being arrested for this, although he was later released. Ridgeway was able to talk his way out of the situation with his wife, Judith, by claiming that it had been a case of mistaken identity. But what he did not know was that the police were expecting to get the DNA for him back very soon. And his arrest for attempted solicitation of a prostitute only further cemented in their minds that he was the man that they had been seeking for so many years. With this reborn task force, 
they began to look into Ridgeway's life, locating his first two wives and questioning them about him. And it was from them that they learned that Ridgeway had a nearly insatiable sexual appetite, but that he also had a very domineering mother who never really seemed to accept the fact that her son was a grown adult male or let him go. So much so that when Ridgeway and his first wife returned from San Diego, his mother insisted that the young couple live in a camper on her property. They initially spoke to Ridgeway's second wife in 1986, but with the renewed interest in Gary, they spoke to her again in 2001, and it was during this series of interviews that they learned that during their marriage, Ridgeway had really never had any desire to have friends, and that his wife was little more than a house cleaner for him, doing the laundry, cooking, cleaning, that kind of stuff, although he never allowed her to see any of his pay stubs. And on the weekends, they spent most of their time with his family. It was from this second wife that they learned that Ridgeway was extremely demanding in the bedroom. Despite his wife's protestations, he would often demand anal sex from her, as well as tie her hands and feet up with bathrobe cords, and that he took to taking her out and having sex with her in public places. One notable story that came from Gary's second wife was that they had been out one evening, and she had had too much to drink, and upon exiting the van, she stumbled only to find hands around her throat the next moment, choking her tightly when she started to scream after realizing it was her husband. Ridgeway had released his hold on his wife's throat before shoving her and running around to the other side of the van in an attempt to convince her that there had been somebody else there who had assaulted her. When his wife demanded that he call the police, Ridgeway refused. Elaborating on this, she stated that Ridgeway had first taken her from behind, using the crook of his arm to choke her, almost like a police officer would do, before switching to throttling her with his hands. They further learned that Ridgeway liked to try and scare his wife and would often attempt to sneak up on her as quietly as possible, placing her in a chokehold with his arm, simply to see if he could do it without her being aware. Ridgeway's second wife also went around with detectives to show them the various areas outdoors that Gary liked to engage in sex with her, and they were startled to discover that most of the areas that they were taken to were the sites where bodies had been recovered during the 1980s. 
on November 30, 2001, detectives from the Kings County Sheriff's Department arrived at the Kenworth plant where Gary Ridgeway worked. After speaking with his supervisors, they arranged to have a meeting with him. Ridgeway's supervisors went and told him that there were a number of individuals there who wanted to talk to him about designing a custom truck. Upon reaching the office where the detectives were, they informed the, the Ridgeway who they were and began to ask him questions. Specifically, they asked him about Carol Christensen, who had been murdered by Ridgeway in 1983. He stated that he may have known her at some point, but that he couldn't remember if he had dated her or not. One bit of interesting information at this point, DNA testing had come a long way since the initial spate of killings, and after going over the evidence, they located a bit of evidence from Carol Christensen's body in the form of DNA that had been taken from a vaginal swab. Apparently this was something that the detectives had not been aware was in their evidence locker until 2001 when they began to reinvestigate the case. They had sent this bit off for testing along with the rest and found that it matched Ridgeway's DNA as well as the DNA found on Opal Mills. When they asked Ridgeway whether he or not he had had sexual relations with Christensen, he replied that they had not. The rest of Ridgeway's day went fairly uneventful until he got off of work at 3 o'clock that afternoon. As he was a making his way through the parking lot, Ridgeway reached his truck and detectives came upon him announcing that he was being placed under arrest for murder. At the same time that this was taking place, detectives had gone to Ridgeway's house to talk with his wife Judith as they did not want her to find out what had happened through the media. And they learned that Ridgeway was a fairly quiet homebody who did a lot of overtime at work. She also told police that Ridgeway told her his first wife had cheated on him, so he had divorced her, and that his second wife had been sleeping with members of the country western band that she had been in, which led to their divorce. However, he neglected to inform her about the arrests he had during the early 1980s attempting to solicit prostitutes and they also clarified for her that her husband was being arrested in connection with some of the Green River killings before finally explaining to her that there was no mistaken identity when Gary had been arrested on the 16th he had been actively attempting to solicit a prostitute all of this information, I'm sure, shook his wife to her very core. To her. 
Judith agreed to go with detectives who were going to place her into hiding while the media furor over her husband's arrest worked its way through the area. After this was done, search warrants were executed at the various homes that Gary Ridgway had occupied since the early 1980s. This was done in an effort to try and find more evidence that would link him to the murders. However, at least at the first two houses, to the best of my knowledge, investigators were unable to find anything of evidentiary value. A lot of things happened over the course of the next few months. I'm not going to get into all of them, but one thing should be noted that is that Gary was originally brought up on four charges of aggravated murder, to which he pled not guilty. And the county was looking at a very long and expensive trial. Somewhere around 2002-2003, Ridgeway's attorney went to the prosecution and asked if they might be able to avoid the death penalty if Ridgeway were to come back and admit guilt to the four murders that were known to have taken place. However, prosecutors eventually came back with an agreement that Ridgeway would be given multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole with the death sentence taken off the table if Ridgeway were to confess to all of the murders that he had committed. I'm almost certain that in the interim, Ridgeway's lawyer explained to him that they had him dead to rights on DNA and that would be in his best interest to take any deal that was offered to him. In June of 2003, Gary Ridgeway, no longer being held at the King County Jail, began his confession. Although reporters had no idea where Ridgeway was, they did note that search and rescue teams had been seen in various areas of Kings County doing searches. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of everything that Ridgeway told detectives, specifically as there are no transcripts of his confessions available and the actual audio tapes have not been released to the public. What is known, however, is that Ridgeway spoke about the killings in a very detached manner, as though the young women that he murdered were without meaning. He stated at one point during the interviews that killing women was his profession in life, also stating that he would go to the same prostitute on multiple occasions in an attempt to allay her fears that he was in fact the Green River Killer so that when he did eventually decide to strike she would feel completely at ease with him. He stated that a few of the first murders he had strangled the women with his hands but eventually 
he moved to a method wherein he would have her at his designated location, often in a bedroom in one of his houses, and he would begin to have sex with her from behind in the doggy-style position, at which time he would take his arm and wrap it around the young woman's neck, using the other hand to push the wrist-forearm area of his arm towards the upper bicep of his arm in a vice-like maneuver, thus crushing the young woman's throat and ensuring her death. The reason he did this was twofold. It was easier to get a hold of his victim this way, but also he was behind her and inside of her at that time, so the only way she could get away was to push back against him, further locking her into place, and I'm sure he could at that point push her down onto the bed and continue squeezing with his arm until the life ran out of her. As I said, he killed many of the victims in his house, but not all of the victims. Some of them were taken out into wooded areas that he had enjoyed having sex with his second wife at and killed there, after which point their bodies would either be left on scene or moved to another dump site. It is known that at least on one occasion, Ridgeway had taken his son with him while he went out trolling for prostitutes in an effort to assage the woman's fears that he's just a regular guy, he's got his son with him, this guy's not going to do anything with him, and his son had sat in the car while Ridgeway parked and took the woman out into a field where he had sex with and murdered her. Ridgeway stated that he began burying the victims around the time of Bridget Meehan. If you remember, she was the pregnant young woman who had been found buried. She was, I believe, eight months pregnant at the time of her death. And he stated that he did this in an effort to try and stop himself from going back and visiting the bodies which, if you'll recall, was exactly what Ted Bundy said that he was probably doing. It wasn't that Ridgway felt disgusted with himself for having sex with these bodies. It was quite the opposite. Ridgway stated that in having sex with the bodies, it reduced his risk of being found out as he would not need to go out and find another victim. But he had stopped having sex with the bodies because the flies and maggots became too much for him to deal with. At some point during the interrogations, Ridgeway stopped being the mild-mannered individual that he had been. It was as though a switch was flipped inside of his mind, and detectives were left facing a very angry man, who he dubbed the New Gary. This, he said, came about because the officers had all the control on him. Here is a quote from one of the confession tapes, which is found inside and rules Green River running red. I'm in control now. He put words in his mouth. I didn't give a shit about sleeping with them. 
the numbers of victims came from me. I don't know if the new Gary can get back in. I killed him at SIR. Green River College, 410 Riverton, Highway 18. I didn't shoot no woman. Two on Black Diamond Road, Carnation Road. During the course of these interrogations, the detectives learned that Ridgeway had been very fond of swap meets over the years. In fact, his third wife, Judith, had also enjoyed participating in them. And the two of them would go very often, and it was through these swap meets that Ridgeway got rid of a a number of personal effects belonging to his victims. This included clothing, purses, as well as jewelry. He also got rid of uh, many of the trucks that he had owned during the period when the killings were most prolific, trading them off at swap meets. That wasn't the only thing he had done with the jewelry belonging to the victims, however. Some of it he gave to various girlfriends as presents, while other pieces of jewelry were left inside the bathroom at the Kenworth plant, and he said it was never enough to arouse suspicion, but people would take it. One bit of controversy that arose during the interrogation of Ridgeway was that police took him out with them while searching for bodies. And a number of them were found. The media got wind of this and made a big stink about that fact. Another thing that investigators learned while interrogating Ridgeway was that he had no care for race of or age of the woman. He was simply concerned with killing them. Because of this, he never remembered what any of them looked like or their names. And in fact, their images and names oftentimes got jumbled inside of his mind. Which is not too hard to see or understand, because if you remember, Ridgeway is known to have suffered from dyslexia his entire life. In the end... Ridgeway admitted to anywhere from 70 to 90 plus murders, although he has only been found guilty of 49 of these murders. These are because these are the bodies that they have been able to find. And that's important to remember because a lot of accounts say, you know, he's only known to have killed 49. If you really dig into this case, that's not what he said at all. One point he said he had killed 90 women, and another point he said he killed 70. But he backtracked on that and really settled on the number 49, which is what believe leads me to believe that there are a lot more young women out there that he killed who will never be found. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem as though the police are all that interested in going out and finding these other victims. That could partially be because they don't really have names to go with. So even if they were to find a body 
accidentally or whatever, it would be very hard to link it to an individual unless there was some personal effect found on the scene, which is highly unlikely as Ridgeway very rarely left clothing or other identifying markers with his victims. Or they had a general time frame from when this person may have died. Which given, you know, the number of years that has passed, as well as animal predation, it is highly unlikely that anything at all will be found at this point. So Ridgeway ended up putting, pleading guilty to 49 murders for which he was sentenced, meaning that he will never, ever have a chance for parole. However, should another victim that the police are unaware of ever be linked to Ridgeway because he did not confess to that particular murder, that would mean that the death penalty is on the table for him, although I find it highly unlikely that even if they were to find a body, they would ever try and prosecute him to the point that he would receive the death penalty. At this point, Ridgeway is 72 years old, so by the time his appeals were over and done with, it is more likely that he would have died from old age. On the date that Ridgeway entered his guilty pleas, it was pretty much a packed courtroom, and he feigned remorse and sorrow for his victims, crying for both the benefit of the judge and those who were assembled. The reality is he felt no remorse whatsoever for any of the crimes that he had committed and only did it in an attempt to gain some semblance of sympathy from those who were gathered. Now at this point I'm going to play a few clips of Gary Ridgway's confessions that have been released to the public. This is so you can get an idea of how detached and uncaring an individual he actually is. And I, I choked her to death. Then I took my socks off and tied them in, in a knot and tied them around her neck and tied them as tight as I could. I'm quite sure I put I agree to guilty to the counts that I committed, not the others. No. That's where the guardrail, at the end of the guardrail. So you, you want to, on the left-hand side. Left-hand side. On the left-hand side. Yeah. All right. Okay, let's start walking. Could we uh, walk down there? That train looks familiar. Down here. And there's a, this, is, this is definitely the spot. She raised her head up. And that's when I uh, put my arm around her, my right arm, and started choking her. Matthew, you know, was sitting back in the truck. I don't know what he was, what he was, what he was doing. I told Matthew I'd be back in a couple minutes. I go for a walk. I didn't really think I had a, a urge to kill her. I just wanted her to stop. And. Uh, what did you want to do to her? What did I want to do to her? Uh, just to have 
so there you have it, the voice of the Green River Killer himself, Gary Leon Ridgway. And since Ridgway's uh, confession and conviction, there have been a few different twists in the case. Some more bodies have been found. Ridgway has been moved to various prisons, most notably uh, United States Penitentiary Terra Haute, which is where the Oklahoma City bombers were kept. Last year, there was a story going around in the media from the Kings County and Washington authorities stating that even though they were releasing some prisoners who had a chance to possibly catch COVID, Gary Ridgway would not be one of those who was to be released. That is going to do it for our deep dive on the Green River killings. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you did, please leave a review, share, and subscribe to the show. I am your host, best-selling author Ian Todd. The Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid. <laughs>